Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello everyone. I hope this finds you well. As you may have noticed, there's been a short break in the Rethinking Education podcast in recent weeks as I took some time over the summer to focus on other things, as people do, and to reflect on the last year. If you follow the mainstream education debate as avidly as I do, and really here I'm talking about the debate as it plays out largely on the internet, social media and blogs predominantly, as well as at conferences and in the tsunami of education books being published currently, you may be forgiven for thinking that all the big questions about education have been settled and now we just need to decide whether we should do retrieval practice at the beginning or the end of each lesson. I think this is partly because the majority of the education debate that takes place online consists of teachers talking to other teachers, with the odd education researcher thrown in for good measure. Let me be clear, this is a wonderful thing. The internet has enabled teachers, for the first time in the history of the profession, to look up and out beyond the confines of their own classrooms and to connect with teachers and researchers all over the world, many of whom are wrestling with the same problems that they are. People are sharing resources and ideas and learning from one another on an unprecedented scale. And this is an absolutely wonderful thing. And you can see the teaching profession becoming more and more confident and sure-footed almost in real time. But there is more to this picture than meets the eye. Education, and schools in particular, are often discussed as though they are an unquestioned good, that schools are an emancipatory mechanism that provide young people with the knowledge and skills that they need in order to survive and thrive in the big wide world, and that qualifications are like keys that open doors and so on. And that's all true. But there's also a shadow side to schooling that's often overlooked. As I learned in my recent conversations with Ellie Costello and Fran Morgan from the social enterprise company Squarepeg, over a million young people in the UK, astonishingly, are persistent absentees from school. Of those, around 100,000 are absent for more than 50% of the time, and around 30,000 are absent altogether. And that's before you count the 100 or so thousand of those on top of that who choose to homeschool. We don't know a great deal about these absentees because schools don't collect a great deal amount of data on them and the data that they do collect, the government doesn't tend to share. Sometimes they're described as the canaries in the mine, those who recognise that school may not be serving them well and start voting with their feet. If this million persistent absentees really are canaries in the mine, this suggests that many more may be struggling within what can often feel to young people like a toxic environment. We do know that the increasing incidence of mental ill health among young people is of grave concern. The statistics are startling and come with a bit of a trigger warning, really. Mental health problems among young people have increased by over 50% in the last three years in this country. One in six young people have a mental health problem. That's five in every classroom of 30. And of those... 70% have had, quote, no appropriate intervention, close quote. Around 25% of young people self-harmed in the last year. 
and around 7% of young people attempt suicide by the age of 17. Suicide rates among young people have roughly doubled in the last 10 years. These are huge numbers of young people who are really struggling. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of these problems are directly caused by schools, although in some cases schools clearly are part of the problem. Mental health is a complex phenomenon with many moving parts. But the question remains, if our schools were different, if young people had more agency and choice over their learning, for example, or if we took the teaching of emotional self-regulation as seriously as we teach long division, would we see these same startling statistics? Mental health and the extent to which young people's suffering may be caused or exacerbated by what does or does not happen in schools is not the only thing we need to rethink. In recent years, in England certainly, we've witnessed the rise of cognitive science striding out of the sea like Godzilla come to save us from our ignorance of human cognitive architecture. Again, this is a good thing. As a consequence of the rise of COGSI, as it is often known among its advocates, many researchers, educators and young people themselves have learned a great deal about memory and how people learn things and many young people have benefited greatly as a result. Perhaps the most common idea associated with cognitive science is the notion that the mind consists of a working memory and a long-term memory. The working memory can be thought of as the mental space we live in and it has limited bandwidth. It can easily become overwhelmed or overloaded. If we want to take information from the external environment, be that in the teacher or in a book or in the curriculum, and transfer that information into the long-term memories of young people, then we need to pay attention to ideas like cognitive load theory, retrieval practice, self-quizzing, interleaving, dual coding, spaced practice, the list goes on and on. But again, there is a lot missing from this picture of how people learn. The role of emotions in learning, for example, and the importance of sociality, the role other people play in our learning, and the extent to which young people are able and enabled and encouraged to communicate their thoughts feelings and emerging ideas confidently and effectively among their peers and with their families and their teachers and the wider world. The role of agency in learning is often missing from discussions around cognitive science and what it takes to motivate young people to learn. The child's background or their past experience and any trauma that they may have experienced in the past. Neurodiversity isn't really taken into account in this, in this model of how young people learn how young people go about making meaning out of their lives as well as learning curriculum content, the importance of identity and the notion that education is not just about learning a curriculum of powerful knowledge, it's also about developing knowledge of self, about personal development and about a process of self-actualization, of becoming more fully yourself in some sense. Flow is also notably absent from discussions around cognitive science. Flow is perhaps the highest state we can seek to attain in learning or mastering something. I'd love to see much more talk of flow in the education debate. Let's set our sights a little higher. And the rest of the body is also often missing from discussions of COGSI. It's as though education is something that only happens from the neck up, and in particular, in the frontal lobes. 
I know some people have written about embodied cognition, Guy Claxton's book Intelligence in the Flesh, for example, and a recent book called The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy-Paul, which I haven't yet read but looks fantastic, and which extends the mind not just beyond the brain to the body, but also to relationships and to the wider society. Alongside mental health and cognitive science, there also remain questions around the school curriculum, which, while being composed of what some may consider to be powerful knowledge, often, in the view from the student's desk, to borrow a phrase from Mary Alice White, can seem incredibly abstract, removed from and irrelevant to the lives of young people. I'm not suggesting that we should only teach kids what they want to learn about, but there is an important conversation to be had here, and the curriculum needs to be forever contested and negotiated and agreed and re-agreed upon, especially around ideas about decolonizing the curriculum, or at least diversifying the curriculum and moving toward a less Eurocentric version of it. And then there's the fact that the world kind of seems to be going to hell in a handcart, or at least you could be mistaken for thinking that if you pay too much attention to the news. The ongoing devastating impact of human activity on the environment and our apparent inability to halt it. The alarming resurgence in recent years of far-right politics. The manipulation of democratic elections by bad actors sloshing around seemingly endless reserves of dark money. The way in which the best minds of our generation seem to now spend their time figuring out ever more insidious ways to get people addicted to their smartphones the astonishing lack of competence among our political leaders, I could point to a hundred things that don't seem to be going very well or even to make any kind of sense at all. And I certainly don't claim to have the answers to these deep-rooted problems, many of which are interconnected. But I do believe firmly that together we can reimagine ways of rethinking and reorganising education that might just lead to a more harmonious state of world affairs ways of reorganizing education so as to alleviate some of the stress and anxiety that so many young people clearly seem to be feeling. Ways of reorganizing education so as to enable every single one of them, without exception, to leave school feeling like a successful, confident, well-rounded citizen of the world, or at the very least, not feeling like an abject failure, having been repeatedly assessed and branded one for however many years. These are the questions that we've started to unpick and unpack in this podcast, which, in case you haven't heard it before, features long-form conversations with a cast of incredible educators and non-educators and beautiful human beings in a vague but nevertheless heartfelt attempt to bring about a more beautiful, less scary state of world affairs. The response to this podcast so far, and to the campfire conversations that kind of sprang into being alongside it earlier this year, has been absolutely phenomenal and far beyond what I ever imagined when I posted my first conversation with Deborah Kidd almost a year ago now. There is clearly a powerful appetite out there for conversations like these and for the actions that will necessarily follow. Indeed, it feels like the whole planet is rethinking education at the moment. It seems that the pandemic has given lots of people pause for thought, and many have become quite resolute that they don't want to go back to normal, because actually, normal wasn't really working for them in the first place. We can see this in the remarkable increase in the numbers of children and parents choosing to homeschool, for example, all over the world. 
In short, our work here is not yet done, not by a long chalk. Having now buried this long lead, it gives me great pleasure to announce that season two of the Rethinking Education podcast will be with us very shortly, and we have some stellar guests lined up in the coming weeks and months. First up will be Pupil Power. What better way to start a new school year than by speaking with some actual young people? This will feature some familiar faces and voices who have appeared in campfire conversations in recent months to share that view from the young person's desk and to ask, why do they always have to sit behind desks anyway? What if young people were able to take part in making decisions about their own education? Do adults really always know best? I'm also incredibly excited to be speaking with Mary Helen Imodino Yang in a few short weeks, a former school teacher and now a neuroscience professor at UCLA who researches the role of emotions and sociality in learning alongside and intertwined with cognition. If you haven't heard of Mary Helen before, I strongly recommend looking her up. She's done at least one TED Talk and several podcasts before, and her book, Emotions, Learning and the Brain, Exploring the Educational Implications of Effective Neuroscience, is an absolute banger. I'll be speaking with Michael Young, a professor of sociology who, at least according to a recent profile in The Guardian, is a counterculture class warrior who turned to Gove through his appreciation for what he describes as powerful knowledge. I'll be speaking with Harry Fletcher Wood about his brilliant new book, Habits of Success, which seeks to apply the insights of behavioural science to helping students form healthy habits and perhaps even to drop one or two unhealthy ones along the way, teachers alongside them. I'll be speaking with Donald Clark about AI, Adele Bates about her brilliant new book, Miss I Don't Give a Shit, Mark Roberts about educating boys, Geraldine Rowe about teacher-pupil collaboration. I'll be speaking with the journalist Warwick Mansell about some of the ethically dubious things that have been happening in the English school system in recent years. I'll be speaking with Jay McTie about understanding by design, authentic assessment and his recent book, Leading Modern Learning. I'll be speaking with Kate Barry and Elaine Long, two inspirational school leaders that I've been working with on an implementation science programme that I developed recently. There'll be some exciting news on that front in the weeks to come. I'll be speaking with Professor Yong Zhao about side effects in education and how what works may hurt, and about his latest fascinating book, Learners Without Borders. And I'll be talking to Johnny Hunt about his brilliant new book, Sex Education for Adults. So, something for all the family. One more thing before I leave you. As I mentioned earlier, as an offshoot of this podcast, I hosted a series of live-streamed campfire conversations before the summer. You can still see these on YouTube as well as listening into the podcast feed. The campfire conversations were really an attempt to bring more voices into this urgent conversation. Parents and carers, alternative educators, psychologists, academics and, most importantly of all, the voices of young people themselves. The campfire conversations are absolutely incredible, enlightening, amusing and frequently moving and I'm dead proud of them. But it's clear that the desire for all these different people to take part in rethinking education conversations is much greater than the format allows. For this reason, I am delighted to announce that next year, in 2022, 
there will be a real live face-to-face -face rethinking education conference. We have an amazing venue and a date in mind, but it's still in the early stages of planning and so I'll announce some more details in the coming weeks. But it will be an attempt to bring people together from all walks of life, including but not limited to school teachers, to share stories and perspectives, to listen to one another and to learn from one another and to cross-pollinate ideas around rethinking education, rethinking the curriculum, rethinking leadership, rethinking assessment, rethinking professional development, rethinking behaviour and attendance, rethinking pedagogy, rethinking educational philosophy, rethinking policy, rethinking traditionalism, rethinking progressivism. You get the idea. Whenever I think about it, I find myself grinning from ear to ear. It's going to be awesome. And so, I strongly suspect, is the forthcoming season of this podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Let's find out together where it goes next. Time is a measure of change.